how do you describe the greatness of God? And I think Paul gives it a shot in 1 Timothy. We're going to look at that. Um, I, I don't know. I, I guess if, if we just had a, a couple of programs that come on television, we could just do away with all of the channels that we have. Uh, we like to solve crimes when, when we have a chance, but, uh, you know, it might be the family feud. It might be Jeopardy. How about that $10,000 pyramid? Think about how easy it would be for if God just popped up on one of the slides, I would think that somebody could guess who is on that slide just by two or three hints. But if you were to say the greatness of God or the attributes of God, do you think it'll take a little longer for them to get that? Probably depends on the contestant that's sitting there and the context. But I really think what Paul says in one verse in chapter 1 kind of encapsulates our strain, our, the challenge that we have in describing God. I'm going to read this to you. It's verse 17, and this is just 16 verses into Paul's first letter. I want you to think about this. I, I don't think that Paul wrote this, and while he was sitting in that Roman prison cell, and that's where he wrote this from. He was in prison in Rome, his first imprisonment. I don't think he was like, this is going to be really cool because about two millennium later, there's people over in Tuscaloosa, Alabama that's going to be reading what I'm writing to him. I don't think he even thought about that. I don't even think that he went through this and, and edited it and says, well, you know, no, I really didn't mean to say that. He was inspired to sit down with some parchment and pen, and some think that he might have had someone there that he was just dictating it to them, and that's possible. It could be that Luke was there, somebody else was there. But he's writing this out and he's talking about things and then he just like interrupts what he's saying, what he's writing. It's like, it doesn't fit here. And you'll see that if you, when we read the, the verses ahead of it. We're not going to get there yet. But look at verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And uh, King James is pretty close. It says, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. It's almost word for word. I don't know why wise was left off at the NIV, but it, it's just this, this exaltation of God right in the middle of Him writing about some other things. And then He resumes His writing. When He says amen, He just resumes in what He's writing. I want you to look at this because this is just a sentence of worship, of adoration of the Lord that ought to compel us to say, do we have those moments? It's kind of like he's riding along and all of a sudden he has this moment of worship. This moment of uh, just giving God praise and thanks. And I want you to look at the key words in this verse, if you will. Now unto the king... The king, not, and of course, that's on the SM Lockridge, that's my king. But he's like, the whole thing about Jesus being king unto the king, not a king, because in his day and time, kingship was an issue, was it not? Even at the trial of Jesus, when 
you know, he was like, this is your king. And the people yell, we don't have any king but Caesar. While, he, while Caesar didn't have king attached to his name, Caesar meant that. It meant a monarch. It meant one totally in control. And it was later when people were confessing that Jesus was their king, it put them in opposition to the Roman government, and therein a lot of the martyrdom took place. But when Paul's sitting in a Roman cell under arrest by a Roman Caesar, and he says, there's only really one king that really matters, and that's the king I'm about to describe. Eternal, not a word that we usually use in worship songs. I dare say you probably can't think of one song, worship song, that has the word eternal in it. Now, some of these others, honor, glory, they're all in there, right? Even king, just... Just different songs. I mean, we the great and mighty king was our first song, and that was a substitute because Davin got sick and they had to change the song. I thought, how neat. They're changing a song to fit my message. It wasn't even about that. But he talks about eternal, and what this word eternal really means, a timeless one, one who time does not apply to. Isn't that interesting? That Paul is sitting in a prison cell He's not really sure yet if he's going to be executed. He does know that he's going to get executed in 2 Timothy. But there's so many things that settled around him. He's in prison, but he says there's something that is also final, and that is the one who I serve is timeless. None of this, none of this that I'm going through right now changes who he is. He is the timeless one. God knows that we are in this temporal world, and if we're not careful, we'll throw everything that we treasure into this world that's passing away. We might ought to get used to the idea that we're going to leave everything here. It's all going to stay, but there's one who is eternal, per perpetuity, beyond time. In fact, Get this, and, and uh, sometimes John Lennox and other people strain my mind, C.S. Lewis, but I just would think about God created time. There used to be a time when there was no time. How about that? That time did not exist. Now, people estimate the age of our earth was um, maybe thousands of years, even billions of years. The universe maybe is billions of years old. Why not? Why not let's just go for a trillion years old or beyond that? But one thing is for certain, for all the people that do not believe that God created, they all admit that the universe and matter had an origination point. That it's not eternal. That matter, this, is, this could never be eternal. The universe is not eternal. It had a beginning somewhere, and we know how it began, don't we? God created it. There's a measurement of time when he said, let there be light, and there was light, and we know what that light was, right? It was the sun. He created the, the constellations, and that's when the clock started ticking. That's when measurement of time was going on. You know, um, it's just kind of like saying what, what Paul is saying. says, Lord, you are the one who is, has always been. And really and truly, been is not, doesn't fit him. Because <laughs> you you're thinking in terms of past. 
It's kind of like, you remember when Moses asked uh, the Lord, says, now, who, who do I tell them that is sending me back to them? You remember what he said? He said, you tell them I am that I am has sent you. Now, that is such an interesting word because who goes around saying, what's your name? I am. That's him, though. That's, he is. He's the... And the word, the word that is used to translate Jehovah or Yahweh, nobody really knows for certain how it's translated because it, they didn't say it. But the four Hebrew characters in that word is yod Hey vav Hey, and it's the Y, it's the H, it's a W, it's an H. So we don't know as Yahweh or Jehovah depending on the vowels that they added. There's no vowels in the Hebrew alphabet. It had to be learned from oral history. So we don't know how that name was pronounced. They wouldn't say it because they thought it was too holy to try. But it's so close to a word that the Lord tells Moses to tell them who's coming, and it's the word to be. Jehovah is the being one, the one who is, the one who always is not been or will be, he is. And this is wrapped up in that first word, this first word that's out of his mouth, eternal. And then he goes to this word immortal. The, the, the word immortal and invisible comes from a negative description by that A that's, that's inserted in front of a word. Like, for instance, uh, atheist is one who doesn't believe in God. A is the opposite of theist, one who does not believe God. A theist is someone who believes in God. So this immortal is, is really the word not corruptible or does not waste away, does not change, does not pine away, that he is constantly the same. He doesn't change. There's no diminishing of God. He's not subject to change. There's not more or there's not less of him. He's the same. And it's all connecting in what Paul in his Roman cell is writing to his friend Timothy. And he's like drawing from who God is that he's not changing. And then you get to that invisible. Cannot be seen with our eyes unless he reveals himself through a veiled Siding. Maybe the closest person came to seeing God is, you can say, Moses. He wanted to see him. He said, you can't see me. You can't see me front on. You can't see the real me or this would kill you. So he shields Moses, puts his hand over his face, and he just goes by him. And Moses gets kind of like peripheral view of the outer part of God's presence, enough to where he wouldn't die, but enough that when he came out of there, his face was aglow and nobody could look at him because he had been in the presence of the, of the living God. No wonder Jesus describes being born again to Nicodemus as being born of the Holy Spirit because just because something is not visible does not mean it's not real. And there's a lot of people, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm going to have to get one of these mics. I don't know what this mic is. Somebody, does, is anybody else hearing that? Yes, sir. 
All right, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Was it bothering? No, no, I'm not going to take a vote whether it's bothering anyone else. In this, you're about to have it. I was about to get up and leave. Just because something is invisible doesn't mean it's not real. You think about wind. Can you see wind? Somebody says, well, I can see. Can you see wind? Not see what it affects. Can you see wind? Well, I can feel. Can you see wind? And it's interesting that pneuma, the word for wind, is the same word for spirit. And this is what he said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, it's like, like the wind. You can't tell where it's coming from. You can't tell where it's going. Where does it stop? Where does it start? Where does it stop? It says, so is everyone who is born of the spirit. You have to be born of something beyond this temporal world, being born of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is, or the Son of God, and, and God the Father, he's talking about, is invisible. The throne cannot be seen with the naked eye. We're going to have to be changed. We're going to have to be resurrected in order to see God. I'm telling you what, that's got to be one of the biggest things that's going to happen to us when all this is over, is that we're going to get an unveiled view of the one who could not be seen in our flesh. Isn't that amazing? I've Very few times... In my life, have I been left speechless? But back in August of 2017, we had planned this. We was going to general council in Los Angeles, and and I, I told Brenda, we're gonna we're gonna go see the Grand Canyon. We're gonna fly into Los Angeles. We're gonna rent a car. We're gonna use a rental car. We're gonna go through Las Vegas, see the Hoover Dam, and we're gonna go on and we're gonna see the Grand Canyon. And then we're going to fly out of Phoenix, Arizona. Now, our trip didn't go like I wanted it to, but it went good. It went. But this is, this is the neat. Anybody here has been to the Grand Canyon? Okay. Well, you know, there's a place called Williams, Arizona, that is like a throwback to the 1950s. And it's, and it's right there on Route 66. And so we found out that there was a train that you could take from Williams, Arizona, up to the Grand Canyon and back. They even had a train robbery take place on the way back that got suspended. I, 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 <laughs> you know, they had people that was going to rob the, rob the train until we was watching the guys run along with the horses. And one of them was thrown. And all these guys were like me. They were probably working part-time retired guys. And I says, oh, he's not doing good. So the robbery was called off. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the sheriff got on the train and let everybody know that they took care of the robbers. I said, yeah, that horse took care of the robbers. But when we got off the train, we went two days. One day with the train, one day we drove up. So we could just stay as long as we wanted to. And watch the sunset. When we walked up to the Grand Canyon, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I did not know what to say. I, I, I was left like, I still don't know what to say. I can't tell you what that was like. 
We started taking pictures. We walked five steps to the right. Take more pictures. Rolling down to the right. Five more pictures. Ten pictures. Fifteen pictures back here. And, and we actually went down where you can go down to the Colorado River. We didn't go down too far because you have to go back up if you go down. But the place was just breathtaking. I, I, think, I think what Paul is doing in, in his letter, he's just kind of like, I will, wish I could really tell you how God really is, but this is my best way to do it. He's invisible. Nobody can see him, but it doesn't mean he's not real. He's more real than this world is. Honor and glory, honor and glory, honor and glory. You can keep saying it as often as you want because those last words tell you that that's the way it's going to be forever and ever. Honor and glory, honor and glory to him. And there's that last word, amen. Now, you can go back to YouTube and pull up SM Lockridge on That's My King, and you can watch the entire hour-plus, or not watch it, you can hear the hour-plus sermon that SM Lockridge preached. And you have to wait to the end of the sermon to get this that we just saw up here on the excerpts. And you know what most of his sermon is about? That word, amen. I've heard... Because I used to get cassette tapes of S.M. Lockridge back in the 80s. There was this guy in New Brockton, Alabama. I've never found what happened to him. And what happened to all of the people. He would send, I, I signed up, he sent a cassette tape. A cassette tape. That's just a little, okay. I had all kinds of sermons by S.M. Lockridge. And one sermon he preached, I mean, over an hour preaching. God never preached under an hour. You ought to thank me after the service. But... He preached an entire sermon on the last word of the Lord's Prayer and kept your attention for the hour. He was that, and he just talked about that word is kind of like a word of saying, whatever you have just said, you say, and it's done. So be it. Truly, truly, verily, verily, when Jesus started a parable or anything with those words, it's double amen. He's like, what I'm about to tell you, you can really bank on this being true. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to ask you this in the few minutes we have left. Why do you think Paul shifts into this praise? Just one verse, verse 17, and you see verse 18, he goes back to what he was doing. And what he was writing is kind of like he stops and does this. And he uses all these words to describe God. Well, if you go back to earlier in the chapter, in verse 12, he's talking about his own conversion. He's talking about his own salvation. In verse 12, it reads like this. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, Consider me worthy to be in ministry, to have this ministry that he's given me. I, I thank Christ Jesus who's given me the strength and he counted me trustworthy to hand me this kind of service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, 
along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that desires full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And I believe as he wrote that, he was overwhelmed (laughs) by the sheer idea that he was not only saved, but being used of God. When he reviewed his life, and he reviewed, he was open about it. He said, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. I was a man that people didn't want to be around. I think he throws in this grace, grace shifts him into this adoration of God. That the grace of God was poured out on me abundantly. When you're lost, you're lost. It doesn't matter how lost you are when you're lost. Right? You can be 10 feet off the road or you can be half a mile. But if you don't know where the road is, you are still lost. And I remember that deer hunting in South Carolina one time. When I shot and I went to look for the deer and it was a little late and I got to walking around in the woods and all of a sudden it got really late. And then I was looking around like, oh boy, this is not good. And you know what I did? I was not, I was not screaming for help. I wasn't praying. I knew that Joe Shirley would realize that I hadn't shown up and he's going to come looking for me. I sat down right there, right where I, right in the middle of trees. I had a gun in case anything made noise near me. It was going to go off. In pitch darkness, couldn't, couldn't tell nothing in the sky. Couldn't see anything. No stars were out, nothing. And all of a sudden, headlights, and I wasn't eight feet from the road. I ran out there like I'd been out there the whole time. I was like, I'm not scared. I'm not scared. I know what's going on. I knew I was right here. I was waiting for you. (laughs) But it hit my, in my mind, I was like, you know what? If you're lost, it doesn't matter how lost you are, you are lost. And in Paul's mind, he was really lost. For what did he say? He said, this is a trustworthy statement and and you ought to fully accept it that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Can anybody say amen? Amen. Sinners like me, sinners like them, and all of a sudden he added this little caveat to it. Of whom I am the worst. Not a bad man. I am the worst of those who are lost. And then he goes into, now, unto the king eternal. Don't you think that some of this awareness, some of this confession, you know, if there's anybody that should have had a guilt complex, it's Paul. He recounted all the junk. And I'll tell you, if you go back 
and see what he says earlier. He talks about the law of God and, it's, and it exposes those who are unholy, those who murder their parents, those who kill other people, those who are involved in sexual immorality, those who practice homosexuality. He says the judgment of God and, and, and this is what the law is here to bring conviction. And he lists all these different things that are sin and he ends up by saying, but what I did was worse. What I did was worse. No matter what I list in front of all of this, I have to go to the head of the line if any of you want to see Paul in heaven and say, listen, you don't know what kind of life I lived. I belong at the front of the line. He says, no, that's my reserved place. Because not only did the Lord forgive me, not only did he forgive me for killing Stephen, for killing the whole families, he would lock up entire families. He was so against the church that he was determined if he had to kill them, that's good. We'll get rid of them, get rid of this religion. And he was on his way to do more damage when he had an encounter with Jesus. And this is when he looks him back, he looks back and he says, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. If you have things that you're still plagued with condemnation in your past, look at this guy. Things you can't let go of. Not only did he get past his own guilt and his own shame and his own disappointments in himself, he, he just saw that as being covered up by the grace of God, that, that God gave him a brand new life. And isn't that true about all of us? And he's not finished with this. I love, I love reading First and Second Timothy. It doesn't take long to read either one of them. But when he gets to chapter 6 and he's about to finish up his letter, he does this again. He goes into another one of these worship moments. It's in verse 16. He says, God, the blessed, the only ruler... And listen to what he says. The praise team can come on up. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. God, who is blessed, the only ruler, king of kings, Lord of lords, who alone is immortal. There's that word again. Who lives in unapproachable light. How about that? Whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever and ever Amen. There's that word again. This is the only two places in 1 Timothy, and, and I dare say it's hard to find any other place where Paul wrote that he just interrupted what he was saying and go into this praise and worship. You know, the, one of the tragedies for us is when we get used to being saved. We just get used to it. We can tell someone, you know, such and such a year. I was nine when I believed on Jesus. And, and that's when I became a Christian. You know, I, I hardly ever describe my salvation that way. Because that's so... That doesn't even come close. When you hear the voice of Jesus speaking directly to
to you, you believing and responding is not nearly as phenomenal as hearing it and being drawn by it. That's what stands out to me, that he would encounter me, a kid that got up on his own and walked down it. I mean, it was Childersburg, Alabama, about 50 people there. And probably the church could fit right here in these first two sections here. So I didn't, thank God, I didn't have a long way to walk to the altar. But it wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered. And this is, I'm like, Lord, don't ever let me get used. Don't ever let me get used to that moment where I can be overwhelmed just thinking about it. Some in this room need a refreshing of the wonder and majesty of your own salvation. Because it's kind of casual. It's become casual. It's become like casual to pray or even to worship. To say words, we can do that without worship. We can sing words without worship. Because worship is offering your own soul to honor the Lord, to honor and bring glory to Him, to give Him His due. And at the end of the services, sometimes we have an altar time. Most of the time we have an altar time. Have a prayer time, approach God time, time to agree, time to seek, time to call upon the Lord. And I don't know. People may say, well, I'm not going down because he said we should come down. How about that the Lord deserves your exaltation of him? Your surrender. You're getting past the shame and the guilt that the enemy continually plagues you with. That batters your mind with. And don't you know he tried that many times with Paul? Paul had a litany of things that he could say, man, what, a, what an awful person I was. But he didn't stay there. He could look back and say, yeah, I was really, I was like the worst of sinners. But he gave me grace. He gave me his love. He gave me his mercy. The two words that we lean on in salvation are in those words preceding verse 17 in in 1st Timothy 1 grace was poured out upon me abundantly and I was shown mercy anyone else like that here grace was poured out upon you abundantly and his mercy someone says grace is getting what you don't deserve and mercy is not getting what you deserve but I'll take either one of those Because both of them are involved in our salvation. Would you stand with me? And I I do want to encourage you after service to help Caroline raise her funds for her summer missions. Lord, I just believe you've spoken to us. But you want to do more than that. You want to change us. I pray for all of us in this room that have become used to being saved that we kind of let that memory fade. Maybe we haven't even told anyone recently our own story. 
to have a stoppage in conversation and move into this moment of exalting you because of the wonder and the majesty of your salvation. I pray for anyone in this room that's battered by guilt, battered by shame, and really cannot seem to reach past all of that to lay hold on this wonder, this speechless, indescribable relationship that we can have with you and have with you through salvation. Free us to be true worshipers that worship you not on Sunday, not with certain songs, but with spirit and truth ebbing through our lives, flowing out of us in true, authentic worship, spirit-led worship. But I pray for those who need a breakthrough, who need a shift in their spiritual walk. You gave that to Paul. You can give that to us, Lord. And if you need a refreshing of God's grace and God's mercy, I invite you to come and just lift your hands and let him supply the words of praise and adoration. You know, any of the songs you guys did in the service will fit. So just sing what you're going to sing. Let's have, let's have a time of worship. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Heal us, Lord. You need healing. You need God to speak to you.